this is Erin Hansen, Extension Entomologist at Iowa State University, and today is the 23rd of June in 2015, and this is the Soybean Pest Podcast. It's our eighth episode of the season, and if you're a faithful listener to the podcast, and I know that besides my mom, there are a few of you out there, and we want to thank you. We appreciate your listenership. We're one person short of our usual podcasting duo. My sidekick, Matt O'Neill decided to take a two-week vacation. I know, that sounds really nice, especially this time of year. But um, I'm not on vacation, I'm not hanging out with the in-laws, and I'm working. And I decided I still wanted to keep up with the podcast to let you guys know about what I'm hearing and seeing about as far as pest activity and soybean. So first I wanted to just briefly recap the Field Agronomist teleconference that I have every Monday uh, with uh, some of the folks, faculty and staff on, on campus and around the state. And uh, what they generally were talking about is that the soybean planting conditions or growing conditions are highly variable. Some that got their their beans planted a while ago, you know, they, they have reached V5 or V6, so that's five or six expanded trifoliates. They're even noticing a few blooms out there, which is pretty typical as we get close to July. Others haven't even planted yet. It's just been too wet. So there's some people that, you know, initially they wanted to plant corn, but that got delayed and delayed enough to where they're converting over to soybean. There's some that are still hoping to plant soybean and others that have actually given up and they're now having prevent plant discussions with field agronomists and their crop insurance. So as a result, we have fields that haven't come up yet and fields that are entering bloom and it's highly variable as you go across the state. And with that variability also comes insects that are attracted to those soybeans during different life stages or different growth stages. And so I just wanted to talk about kind of what I'm hearing and seeing um, as far as uh, general pest pest activity in soybeans. So the first thing we mentioned a little bit last time is soybean aphid. Now this is our number one primary insect pest in the state and actually throughout the north central region. And there have been a few people, uh, especially those people that look at hundreds, maybe even thousands of plants, which includes my lab, you know, they look at a lot of plants. And what they're finding is that every once in a while they find one or two plants that have a small aphid colony on them. Generally they're tended by ants or you might even see lady beetles around the area so that's a good way to catch that first one or two plants in a field is to look for soybeans that look like they're covered with ants or lady beetles. And so by no means is this an economic situation. Again they're just finding one or two plants here or there scattered throughout plots or fields. The ones that I've been hearing the most about have been in northeast Iowa near the Northeast Research Farm in Nashua and also near Decorah. Now this is not unusual because this is where we typically find soybean aphids on soybean first every year. And this has generally most most to do with their overwintering location, which is buckthorn. And because that is where we have the most buckthorn, it makes sense that that's where we find the most aphids on soybean every spring. Uh, I was also recently got a message from Bruce Potter. He's an entomologist in southwest Minnesota near Lamberton. And he basically said the same thing. Yep. We found aphids. It's where we first find them every year. Not a big surprise. He's not especially worried at this point either. So what I would recommend is that because we're finding aphids on soybean is to take a look, 
look at a couple hundred plants, see if you see aphids out there. It's usually after bloom is when they do the majority of within field movement and between field movement because they get those winged or migratory aphids forming. I would continue to scout weekly until you get through seed set to make sure that you're not missing uh, a threshold at a point at which you need to treat to protect yield. So that's a usual. That's what I expect to see every year. Again, it is our most it is our primary pest. But a couple of the things I also wanted to talk about was the not so common, the unusual suspects. And the first one is green clover worm. And I would say this is what people would think was a more common pest in the 1980s. And since then, it's been really fluctuating. And generally, we don't really reach economic levels, although you can kind of you see them in soybean every year. And so because this is not a usual pest, I wanted to just talk about identification, uh, life cycle, and management options. So this, this pest, a green clover worm, overwinters as a pupa in the crop debris or leaf litter within and around soybean fields. And so it overwinters as a cold hardy pupa. It completes development into adult. The adults mate, lay eggs, and the females will deposit eggs on the undersides of soybean leaves. When the larvae hatch, they'll go through six instars. And generally they're feeding on the upper third or upper half of the soybean canopy. And so you're most likely to see them in those areas. And so because they're feeding on the top part of the plant, it's been my experience that people tend to overestimate the amount of feeding injury or defoliation that is occurring within fields. And that's because as humans, we're standing, looking down on plants, and you see the defoliation more easily than if they had been feeding in the lower canopy. So I would try and gauge your defoliation eye as best as you can, and you're trying to estimate defoliation on the whole plant and also for the whole field. So you're not just looking at individual plants, you're not just looking at those around the perimeter, you're trying to get an estimate of defoliation for the entire field. They will feed on other legumes like alfalfa, uh, and they feed on some ornamentals, and they can be common to see in weeds as well. And so generally what I would recommend if, if you have significant defoliation from green clover worm is to consider a foliar application if the defoliation exceeds 30% before bloom or 20% after bloom. And you might not just have green clover worm, you might have other caterpillars in the mix as well and it doesn't really matter, a caterpillar is a caterpillar. So if you have a couple green clover worms and a couple thistle caterpillars, you can just lump them in and estimate defoliation for the entire field. For the identification of green clover worm, as the common name suggests, it's a green caterpillar and it has white stripes on either side of the body that run from the head all the way down to the tip of the abdomen. They have three pairs of true legs right behind the head. They also have three pairs of fleshy prolegs in the middle of the abdomen. And then they also have a fleshy pair of prolegs at the tip of the abdomen. And so one way to distinguish green clover worm from other green caterpillars that you might see like soybean loopers is that loopers only have the two pairs of fleshy prolegs in the middle of the abdomen and they move like I would think a classic inchworm moves. Green clover worm does not move like that. They move on all legs, kind of like you would normally see a caterpillar, all legs all the time. They don't have that inching movement. Also something that's unique about the behavior of green clover worm is that they'll thrash around violently if you try to pick them up or handle them. They don't like to be handled and will wiggle uh, to try and get away from you. 
soybean loopers and, and other caterpillars that you see out in soybean are not likely to have that violent behavior. And so that's just a, a good way to distinguish green clover worm from other caterpillars that you could see in soybean. Next, I wanted to talk about uh, a sporadic pest that is maybe an emerging species in our state, and that's Japanese beetle. It's been in our state since 1994, but has primarily been considered an urban or ornamental pest. However, it has spilled over to field crops like corn and soybean and can occasionally cause significant feeding. And so we've, just based on degree days, we've estimated that the adults should be above ground, and that's happening particularly in central Iowa. And so they can feed on corn and soybean, as I mentioned, and it's important to know that if their emergence happens before corn silking, that that is potentially something that should be on your radar because they're strongly attracted to silks. And if they're out before silking, they will be... Uh, they'll be motivated to move to corn and can potentially clip silks and interfere with pollination. So if you happen to be in an area in the past where that is an issue, I would strongly recommend to scout corn, particularly during that silking period. In addition to Japanese beetle, we have false Japanese beetle that's also active in corn and soybean right now. And although they're not considered a field crop pest, sometimes they can get confused with Japanese beetle, and so as the name suggests, false Japanese beetle, they look similar, except they're the same, same size and shape, but they don't have that metallic green or bronzed look, and the, the tufts of white hair along the sides of the abdomen are not as obvious as they are for the true Japanese beetle. So what we really care about is the true Japanese beetle because sometimes it can be an economic pest that we need to uh, have treatment decisions to, to consider later in the season. Uh, those are the, the main pest activities that I'm hearing about. I just wanted to keep you updated. And uh, I hate to admit it, but I miss Matt a lot. Doing the podcast by myself wasn't as bad as I thought. So see you guys next time.